Up next, the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. After this message. Most people don't realize that cannabis is serious business that requires serious technology solutions. Hi, I'm Terry from Sunstate Technology Group. We are seriously proud to provide technology and security systems that help cannabis companies compete and succeed. From planning and expansion to hardware and daily IT support, I'm here to tell you that having the right technology is critical to security and smooth business operations. Partner with a technology team that understands the unique needs of this industry. For details, visit sunstatetech.com cannabis. sunstatetech.com cannabis. And now, it's time for the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. Listen in as Snowden interviews cannabis industry pioneers, marijuana experts, policymakers, medical practitioners, patients, and other amazing individuals with compelling stories to share. It all happens right now. Here's the Cannabis Reporter, Snowden Bishop. Hi, and welcome back to the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. I'm Snowden Bishop, and I'm happy you could join us. If you were alive during the Nixon era, chances are you remember the anti-marijuana TV commercials, which got about as much airtime as today's pharmaceutical commercials get, 50 years after the sinister but brilliant reefer madness campaign still permeating the collective conscience The 1970s propaganda that aimed to ostracize the multi-ethnic marijuana counterculture worked to the point that even the most intelligent and articulate advocates were either feared or simply shunned by mainstream America. Making cannabis acceptable in mainstream perceptions has been as much or more important than making it accessible to the masses. Although public perception has changed dramatically in the last decade, the stigma hasn't entirely gone away. Shifting the paradigm has taken a concerted effort on the part of activists who learned the hard way that showing up on Capitol Hill in tie-dyed t-shirts smelling like marijuana would get them nowhere if their goal was to convince an already skeptical audience of Ivy League-educated lawmakers about the virtues of weed. When California became one of the first states to legalize cannabis for medical use, dispensary owners realized early on that presenting their stores like smoke shops would alienate new customers, especially baby boomers who spent their entire lives shying away from marijuana because of the cultural stigma. While they're of the age group that need cannabis the most, they remain the hardest to convince of its legitimacy as medicine they're least likely to feel comfortable in the unfamiliar setting of a dispensary and the most likely to feel a bit intimidated asking for a substance they'd been taught was an evil drug. The industry has matured in the public eye by suiting up and showing up as a sophisticated sector that has earned the public trust. Activists look more like high-paid C-level executives than flower children getting high in a Summer of Love era B-movie. Dispensaries look more like high-end retail establishments than the smoke shops appealing to hippies who want to get high. And thanks to the multitude of educational websites providing useful G-rated information, cannabis patients no longer have to decipher vernacular in High Times magazine to learn how to use cannabis. And now that 32 states have legalized whole plant cannabis for medical or adult use, we're starting to see state regulations allow for more convenient ways for patients to access cannabis from more retail outlets to delivery services to online markets. 
And that's the topic of today's show, and I'm really excited to introduce our guest. Andrea Brooks is a cannabis activist, lobbyist for social change, and entrepreneur with a passion for health and wellness. After a debilitating injury that led doctors to tell her she would never work again, her frustration with the side effects of prescription pain medications led her to the cannabis that played a crucial role in her recovery. Realizing that information about and access to cannabis products were extremely limited, she was inspired to enter the cannabis space and founded Sava, the first of its kind online cannabis marketplace and delivery service in Northern California. Building on a nonprofit career that focused on strengthening human and social services agencies, she applies her expertise in conducting needs assessments, developing strategic partnerships, and creating community to Sava, all while leading the growing team. Andrea, thank you so much for being here. I am really delighted you could join me. Thank you. So I've known about Sava for a long, long time, but I want everyone else to kind of hear about how you decided to get into this. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to. So my journey to cannabis definitely had, there was a specific event that led me into the industry. And, you know, my previous career was totally different. Um, and I loved what I did. And then what happened was in 2010, I had a major injury that left me unable to work. Um, I thought still, you know, I'm young and healthy. And even though the doctors are telling me really bleak outcomes, I thought I would still recover. And then I, what ended up happening was I was, you know, pretty much bed bound for about a year and a half. So I had a spinal related injury and had nerve damage. And, um, it was a very dark, very bleak time in my life. And I really just felt like my life stopped. Um, I was taking a ton of pain medications to deal with the chronic pain. Um, and, you know, those, they can be helpful, but it doesn't, it wasn't healing my body. Like nothing was improving anymore. Um, and as, you know, I just started to sink down deeper and deeper and it felt like I was never going to get back to, you know, any sort of life where I could be working or contributing or doing things. And one day I just kind of felt like there has got to be a different way. and started making some calls and connected with a friend of mine who grows amazing flower. And from there, I started experimenting with cannabis and I was getting fresh CBD to THC ratios um, made for me both, you know, I was both smoking and taking tinctures and the introduction of cannabis into my routine was a complete game changer. Um, and so it was, it was also completely unexpected. I was not someone who was a cannabis person. You know, it was like, it took me almost two years to even think of using cannabis for pain and inflammation. And I look back on that and I'm like, that is just so crazy. And the, the reason for that is that there wasn't, you know, the type of education that there is now. It was, you know, we're talking 2010 to 2012. Um, it was just, you know, things weren't, I don't feel like products or um, deliveries or dispensaries were geared towards my demographic or, you know, me specifically. And I just, it was just not even something on my radar until I had gone down this dark path. And so creating Sava is really the answer to the question of like, why did I not come to cannabis sooner? Um, because I, I don't, 
and that and that was really what led me to create Sava was like look what this did for me um I also had someone that I knew that grew it you know I knew exactly what I was getting I was having guidance I was having transparency and all I you know once I continued to heal and you know improve what I wanted to do was replicate my experience for others. What year was this that you first started Sava? Sava, I started working on Sava in 2015. Okay, yeah. So, you know, what I find really interesting about this is that prior to that, really, the marketing of cannabis was geared toward people who had more familiarity with it. And I think I was probably like you. Cannabis was never on my radar before 2010 when I first started writing about it. And, you know, I was never a cannabis user. I'm still really not unless I need it for something like pain. Mm -hmm. And I think that there was that stigma that was attached to it. And what I thought was pretty interesting when I first discovered Sava was when you first launched it, honestly. And it was when we were first launching the Cannabis Reporter and so it would have been 2015. And I thought, wow, you know, there's there's a there's an opportunity to reach people who were like me. And as you said, like you, with an environment that didn't feel like you were walking into Stonerville. So right. And I think that now a lot of the more mainstream marketing of cannabis, especially in states that have had legalization programs for a longer period of time, now they're a lot more sleek, a lot more geared toward the professional person who doesn't want to feel like they're, you know, walking into a culture that's unfamiliar to them. And, and I think that the early pioneers in this concept of marketing it uh, really should be credited more, which is one of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you about this. And I think that a lot of the business enterprises now are also really trying to show a very professional face and cannabis is changing. It is becoming more mainstream. But it was interesting to also hear you talk about your journey because I think a lot of people when they have a serious injury like that, a lot of people don't think automatically, oh, cannabis can help me. So I think it's important for people to hear that from you. And at the time, were the doctors giving you opioids and other drugs to try to cope with it? Yeah, I, I mean, I was prescribed so many different types of pills, and I didn't want to take them all. I took what I felt was necessary to break the pain cycle. Um, I mean, I also really learned that when you are in intense chronic pain, you will take whatever to make it stop. It is, it, you know, you it's just unending, and it feels just like it builds, and it was... Um, and takes such a mental toll as well. So yes, I was taking opioids. I was taking a lot of different medications. I tried, like I said, to take the bare minimum, but you know, I was taking them. And then when I started shifting um, to using cannabis, both first to supplement and then exclusively, you know, I slowly weaned myself off. But I also didn't feel like I could be talking to my doctors about it. I wasn't sure what was going to be put in my file, what they were going to say about me. And like, would that, you know, all these, I was concerned about consequences, but I didn't even know what they were, but I was concerned. Yeah. And <laughs> the other thing that I've heard from people is that they were afraid that their insurance companies would drop them. Mm-hmm. If, if the doctors put into their files that they were, you know, supplementing their regime with uh, cannabis therapy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, 
when you're healing from an injury, you're in such a vulnerable position. You do not really feel empowered. You're kind of um, at the behest of these other organizations, companies, insurance companies that are, you know, pushing you around. So you don't want to rock the boat. You don't want to stand out in a bad way. But I also wanted my life back. So, you know, it's like what, what the system was providing for me wasn't working for me. And so I had to figure out something different. So how long did it take you actually to titrate up to a level where you could actually wean off all of the other medicinal therapies that you were taking for the back injury? It took, you know, I made a big switch about a month into experimenting with cannabis, where then I started using then the other pain medications only as needed. So I wasn't using them as my baseline routine. I started using cannabis as my baseline routine, but it wasn't a simple linear journey. Um, you know, there was, again, a lot of research, trying different things, um, things like sometimes things worked, sometimes times things didn't work and like trying different routines. I mean, it did take me longer than that initial month to get a routine that really was the most dialed in for my body. Um, and that's something I think, you know, it's important because as cannabis gets more mainstreamed and normalized, which I'm all for that, you also need to understand that this plant is complex and it's not like smoke a joint, everything goes away. You know, it was under, really understanding what I was getting and what was working for me and trial and error. And so I think it's really important for people, especially when they're having a serious um, medical issue and they're turning to cannabis, it's important to have some patience in the process because it's not really a silver bullet in that way. You know, you do want to be able um, to try a couple different things and, you know, hopefully work with someone who can be helping to guide you. That makes total sense. And I think that it's important for patients to hear this because, you know, we can hear from the medical side why it works and we can hear from the scientists to talk about formulations and how they're arriving at different therapies for different patients and stuff like that. But I think a lot of people probably could appreciate hearing that it takes a while to sort of learn what's right because cannabis is such an individualized medicine. It's not like one size fits all. And everyone has an endocannabinoid system which processes it differently. And there's so many factors involved, like how old are you? What is it exactly that you're experiencing? What part of your body is ailing? Is this a neurological thing with your nerves? Or is this something that's just a physical pain from musculature? Or, or is it some kind of disease-related pain and all of that? And so it takes so long. And I've spoken to a lot of people who just give up if they can't seem to get the right dosage. And some people just don't like that feeling of euphoria. They feel uncomfortable with it. And so, you know, they'll try it a couple of times. They'll <laughs> The edibles especially, if it's not working, they take too much and then they get way too, you know, high to function. And yeah, it's... So it's important to hear that from a patient's perspective. And how are you now? I mean, did it have any regenerative effects on you? Have you been able to titrate down off of dosages and still maintain pain-free life? Or are you still dealing with the pain of the injury itself? I still deal with it. I mean, I for I think for a lot of people, when they have a major injury, your body is it doesn't, for me, it, it wasn't like I'm back to normal and I feel like my body is changed. So I do a lot of ongoing management, which means I still need to do movement therapy and PT and all these things um, to make sure I'm like keeping my body strong. And um, so I 
I go, I have kind of a cycle where I know how to use like the different tinctures. I, I use a lot of tinctures <laughs> and topicals and I smoke. I mean, I, I use everything, but I have different routines from, for different types of days. You know, there, if I'm waking up and my pain is more intense then I know what to go towards. Um, and it, you know, it goes up and down. If I push my body too hard and I think, you know, I can work a, 12 hour day with no repercussions like that is not really true for me anymore I mean that's a long day but I yeah I still have to manage things every day um and I still sometimes can't believe this story of mine you know it's like it's it was such a dark time it feels kind of distant and surreal at this point but the second I push myself too far pain comes back more intense um, so there's like my day-to-day -day management and then there's also flare-ups that I'll have, which is a little bit of a different protocol. Right. And I want to talk a little bit about the marketplace because first of all, can people go on there? Obviously you have a lot of CBD products that now fortunately we're able to order from anywhere in the country. It, it, well, it depends on who you talk to, but <laughs> I have so much to say. <laughs> I know. And I'm sure that you've run into some pretty challenging situations legally, too. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. So, well, you know, what, and what's important is, you know, I'm in California. Uh, we're based in the Bay Area. This is, you know, we have a license in San Francisco. Um, so we are still beholden to the um cannabis laws within the state of California. And that still means, of course, because it's not federal, we can't go out of the state. Um, and that we are, you know, you know, we're, we follow the laws very strictly. We're very bullish on compliance. So that's one thing, you know, we currently serve the larger Bay Area. So we deliver to over 50 cities and they go out of our primary hub. Um, but that means, yes, like we cannot deliver again over a state line with um, CBD, you know, some of what you're referring to or a lot of what you're referring to is hemp derived where people are able to ship um, and sell it elsewhere as, you know, where I am in California, it is not legal for a licensed cannabis um, company to sell hemp derived CBD. So we are still separate from that market. Um, I also have a lot of concerns about that market. I think there's an incredible amount of potential, but there's also a real lack of regulation and not really understanding um, why you would choose one dosage over another and you know what's really in these products. So I think there are some really high quality um, you know, hemp-derived CBD companies, but I also think they're few and far between. In my experience, I know that you're absolutely right about that. And you do have to be incredibly careful. And I think that for the consumer, that's sort of a difficult thing to navigate. And I don't think anybody has a has the best formula of, of trying to find it. But what I'm looking forward to is a day when we have standards that must be adhered to throughout the entire nation so that people aren't getting ripped off when they're going online and buying CBD oil, thinking that it's going to be the end all save all for them. And then they find out that the dosages just aren't where they should be, or they're just not made as purely as they should be. And there's all this hype about isolates and additives and stuff like that. And there's a lot of good that's coming out of all of that experimentation. But you're right. I think that consumers just have to beware. But I'm in Arizona, for example, and I can get on your website. 
So what happens if there's, and you're not allowed to sell hemp-derived CBD, so essentially it wouldn't be allowed for me to order something and have it delivered to me here in Arizona. Yeah, our site is configured that if you went on through, you will not be allowed to purchase because you can only purchase in a existing zip code that we serve. So you will, right. you'll get blocked pretty quickly. Um, that said, you know, if you, as an Arizonian, were come to visit to the Bay Area and you are in a location that we deliver to, we can deliver to you. So it's, it's, you don't need to be a resident in California, but you need to be at a physical address in the service area. Right. So you can, you can peruse and learn. Um, you can, you know, read about our blogs and those things, but you cannot currently, within the current legal structure, you cannot purchase and yeah. have it delivered to you. Yeah. Wow. Well, tell me really quickly about the challenges with the California Live. I've covered this a lot on our website in terms of written articles and stuff like that. But I think it's an interesting turn of events when California finally enacted its adult use legalization. Then all of a sudden, hemp CBD was like out the window. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, you saw it. It is an interesting thing. I mean, you saw people... Um, you know, during the transition of legalization, a bunch of people moved to hemp-derived CBD, and then when legalization came back, people kind of dropped that. Um, you know, a big, a big challenge just for like the cannabis industry proper um, in California, and this is the same in, in quite a few other states, is also getting through the licensing process. Um, you know, it can depend on where you're located. Um, the ducks you need to get in a row are quite challenging in terms of finding the right type of space and having to have a landlord that is willing to work with you and make the improvements on it. So, you know, that has been a major challenge for people is just, you know, their access to these connections and something that I think about a lot. And um, we, we integrate this into how we curate the products on the site is, you know, how can we support um, the legacy growers, operators, makers that allowed all of us to get here that may not have the type of background and business skills that some of these newcomers have, but how can they still be here? And that's, you know, it's been challenging because to get through the whole process and get a license is not cheap. Um, it's not easy and it requires, you know, not just perseverance, but it does require capital. And, um, there are definitely legacy operators that have made it through, but if, you know, if companies like myself don't actively support those brands and make space for those brands, it's going to be hard for them to survive because they're not going to have the big, you know, marketing dollars that some of the, the newer entrants have. I find that to be really interesting. And I've also heard that ever since the adult use law was enacted, that the expenses have gone up a lot for the legacy producers in terms of like the amount of testing at every stage that is required. It's it's far different, even for those who really were very uh, conscientious about how they tested and their processes. They've been very careful about keeping them pure and not getting lazy about what they're producing. And yet new law sort of made it more difficult for people to afford it. I guess, as a way to say it, the expenses just were 
through the roof when that law. How did you deal with that? And the products that you're selling online, obviously you have to get the certificates of authentication and the, and the testing results and everything else from everything just so that you have that on file. But as a retailer, do you have to be involved in that process at all? So as the retailer, you know, there's a whole process. You know, we you know, we work with brands and you can create great partnerships on the marketing side, but when you purchase a product, you're not actually purchasing it from the brand, you're purchasing it from a distributor, which is a different license type. And they hold the product and that's where the order actually gets put into and fulfilled from. So from the perspective of compliance, there's all these different steps one needs to go through. So this plant, you know, from origin to where it lands on a shelf to where it goes to the person is tracked all the way through. And there's documentation all the way through. So, so yes, we look at things, you know, we, for every product, you know, we have a, a way that we select the companies that we work with, that's very specific. And then once we have that relationship, you know, with every order, there are different test results, and we look every single time. Um, it's I believe that it's very important. Those test results are onerous and expensive, and I think there needs to be some change um, around them. And also, it is great to see the level of detail about uh, something that people are taking into their bodies. So I love seeing the test results. You know, I will every once in a while, there'll be something where I'm like, well, what does this mean? And um, being able to have that knowledge is really helpful. You know, again, because we started talking a bit about the hemp CBD uh, world, like there's not that level of detail there. And we know hemp is a bioaccumulator and sucks up, you know, everything that's in the soil where it's grown. So with the products that we carry and seeing the test results, we know how clean it is. And that is a great thing. You know, you, you raise a really interesting point about that from seed to sale <laughs> in a way, but it's, it's like from seed to ingestion. But, ingestion. <laughs> but what, I mean, it might seem like a complete pain in the, you know, what for the industry to have to go through these hoops that no other industry has ever really had to jump through. But on the flip side, I wish that the pharmaceutical industry had to comply on this level. Because we really don't know what's in these medicines. And, you know, half the time you don't know whether they're made from animal parts or if they're made from, you know, some kind of toxic petrochemical binder or, you know, what country they're made in. I mean, you know, you get a prescription from the doctor. You rarely ask questions because it's coming from a doctor. It's coming from a pharmacy. And you think to yourself, oh, well, we've got the FDA and they protect us. But we're finding lately... Yeah. <laughs> and I did an article on this lately because, you know, the FDA was starting to insert itself in just the CBD market and, you know, trying to apply some of the rules to the CBD market that they weren't even applying to the opiate market. There's a lot of big money that's into our elected officials and also into the appointed officials. There's a lot of lobbying that goes on for these rules that are made that really deeply impact consumers on a very core level. I mean, your health, there's nothing more important than that, right? So if they're allowing some of these opiate manufacturers to create drugs that kill 40,000 people a year and allow them to come up with new products just by, you know, flipping a, a tag on a molecular 
roadmap, <laughs> if you will, without going through the testing and without proving the safety and efficacy. You know, and I, I did an interview with someone a few weeks ago that said, you know, there's only 30% efficacy required by the FDA on these pharmaceutical companies. And yet these rules for cannabis are so stringent. So, I mean, it really would be great to apply some of these same rules to the pharmaceutical industry so that there's a more fair competition for everyone who's involved in it. So, I mean, the, the hoops we need to jump through to be in this industry and be selling product compared to, you know, other medicine, let's say that's, that's out there that can even just be gotten over the counter, forget a prescription, is, is pretty bananas. Because yes, it doesn't feel like there's this, the same type of transparency and other components of the pharmaceutical industry. So I think there's a lot of feelings that we are being held to a higher standard. Um, and there's a higher, you know, burden, higher cost to entry, all these types of things. And, and still this industry is thriving. Um, and again, I would say for the smaller type of operators, for the legacy operators, you know, we're all here um, because we really believe in it. You know, and that's why we're here. That's why we're going through all these crazy ups and downs because, you know, people have a misconception, like you're in the cannabis industry, you're just like rolling around in cash all day. It's like, no, it's like running any other business, all the challenges, and then you have this whole other new legal layer on top of it that everyone's trying to navigate at the same time. It's challenging and it, it can really wear you down. Absolutely, it can. And I really wish that elected officials would start to really truly understand the importance of this industry. And I think they are. I think that they're, but they're doing it more from a, a criminal justice point of view in a lot of ways, which I think doesn't really help their case. I think that they need to start getting the, the, the people who are really leading the medical side of it too, to go in and explain how important this is for people. You know, that endocannabinoid deficiency is one of the largest causes of age-related disease in our country, and nobody really knows about it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, those organizations are out there. You know, it's just they're not being integrated yet. You know, there's, um, you know, one in particular, the American Cannabis Nurses Association, and we um, do some work with them, and they're an amazing resource. Um, but yeah, it's not, there needs to be a lot more access you know for for example that organization is um has been doing education and is doing more education and working on growing um but i think you know especially for people with serious medical conditions they do need a licensed healthcare professional that is going to understand the endocannabinoid system um and i wouldn't say that you know that that has not become mainstreamed or normalized um and i think you know the the folks that make up um organizations like the American Cannabis Nurses Association have taken a lot of risk as well. You know, there's a lot of judgment, that stigma, are they going to get, you know, pushed out of their place by starting to talk about cannabis a lot. So again, the, it's with legalization, there's a lot of opportunity, but it, it's not a linear line and it has a lot of bumps in the road. And that's a great organization, too. They've done so much important work, and we see them out in all of the expos and events speaking as well. And I think that they're doing a great job educating people about it. 
And I think that some of the medical schools are now starting to understand the importance of adding cannabis-related curricula in their programs, in their syllabi. So it's coming. And, you know, certainly in some universities, they're also doing a lot of new programs about industrial hemp to educate people about what's possible. But it's just not enough. And I find it just astonishing how slow this process has been on the academic level. I mean, (laughs) you know, the research is coming along. There's a lot of money going into academic research, but it's not going into the syllabi of all of these universities that have medical schools. And that to me is still very astonishing. But it's surprising. Yeah. I mean, you have this major system that regulates homeostasis yet we're never educated about it you know it's like it it is pretty mind-boggling um how we you know it feels like we're in such a modern advanced age yet there's still so much we need to understand just about our own bodies and how they work absolutely (laughs) yeah and uh i think also there are a lot of doctors out there who really are you know going out on the circuits and advocating so It is coming, like I said, but back to the business side of this, because in 2015, I thought what you were doing was fascinating and enough to want to write about it because I see what you're doing as being the future, especially since cannabis is such an important supplement, if you will, or medicine for people who are in their later years in life. And a lot of these people don't drive and don't have the means to be able to go to a dispensary and pick up their medicine like this. And it's not like it's available at the hospital when they check in and they go home with all of these drugs that, you know, are wrecking even more havoc on their already fragile systems. So to have an online environment like this, In California, I mean, you know, if I think when I get into my retirement age, if they haven't changed the laws yet, I'm moving to California. I've lived in California for a lot of my adult life. (laughs) But I think that this is such a great concept. And back in 2015, you still had the medical law. How did you convince the regulators that selling online was going to be beneficial? Or how did they allow you to do this? And what would you recommend to states that have brand spanking new cannabis laws, new regulation, if they wanted to, say, do a similar thing, or I don't know if you're going to ever franchise what you do (laughs) to go out into other states, but how would you advise somebody who wanted to try this in their state? What would you advise them to tell their regulators? Or how would you have them pitch it? How did you pitch it? Oh my goodness. Well, again, how, where do I start with this question? So I think one major thing that'll come out of the gate with is the way that I operate my business now, um, post Prop 64 is different than how we operated in advance. Cause there was, you know, there's not, there wasn't the set of regulations that we have now that clearly, um, states how one can or cannot run their business. So in in a general sense, anything before Prop 64 was kind of like the Wild West for anyone in the industry. Um, there was, you know, but, and I would say around that time, there was a lot of energy, like legalization's coming, it's happening, like all these things. So it, it still in many ways was taking risks, but also feeling like 
feeling like you were part of something that was like the new movement that was going to get through these final changes. So it wasn't without a lot of ups and downs and challenge. And again, perseverance, because I really believed in what I was doing and uh, I wanted to see something different in the cannabis space, but it wasn't something where I could just, um, you know, go to an office, get a certificate stamped and boom, I'm up and running. It was, you know, a lot of challenges. You have um, a lot of, you know, maintaining general business structure um, in the cannabis industry, even to this day is not like running a small business anywhere else. But for people that want to be doing similar things, I mean, I think it's, it's also about really what you're wanting to create. Like I had a very specific vision of what I wanted. It was something that I wished, you know, I wished I had Sava when I was initially injured where I could come and learn about things and talk to people that I feel trust, you know, were trustworthy and understood my situation. So I think some of it is, you know, general business advice, you know, what is it that you're trying to create and why, and, you know, being really clear about what you're trying to accomplish. Um, but based on the laws of one's particular state, it's still going to be a lot of regulatory navigation. Um, one advice I would say, uh, bring an attorney that you trust into your team. Having a legal person that's uh, with you from the beginning is going to help you a lot. No doubt. Bring on a bring on an attorney as you know advisor. Include them in the company um, because I've I've seen people just burn immense amounts of cash just trying to get up to speed on um, how to move forward. You know, ironically, I think that there are more attorneys in this space than there are doctors. <laughs> I think you are correct. I think you are correct. <laughs> I mean, finding qualified medical professionals to talk about this is really a challenge still to this day, which just is mind boggling. But yeah, you know, that's a great way to explain it. Attorneys can help also with the licensing and all of that. But and so you have a, a dis, do you have a dispensary license in San Francisco or is it is there a special license for having the online environment? There, so it's um, there's different license types with regards to retail. There's um, and what I have is non storefront retail. So there's like the retail licenses for the brick and mortar dispensaries. And then there is you know, the retail lines, uh, retail license for a delivery service, which is what we have. So that means that, you know, that license is tied to our location. Um, and then that's the place where, you know, product is stored and distributed from. So it's a, it is a very specific license type. There is a lot of work done in California to make sure that there were delivery licenses because initially they weren't included in delivery is huge. Um, aside from the fact that just in general, um, getting anything delivered to your door quite quickly has become the norm. People expect it. There's also the fact of some of what you were mentioning earlier is that there are people that for, for the folks that this is more of a medical um, usage, they need that, you know, and that's why I came to, um, you know, that's why I gravitated towards delivery as opposed to wanting to open up my own store was I was one of those people that needed something brought to me. You know, those bad days, you can't move. You need someone coming up to your door. And also that person, you know, for me, I want someone I feel safe coming to my house. 
That's a really interesting point, too, because if they're laid up, yeah, they can't drive. They can't go anywhere. I mean, this is this is a, a fantastic service, I think. And it's it, it really is heartbreaking that this isn't available in every state because <laughs> it really is such. a. And you know what? I think it will be eventually. But we're still in the doldrums of prohibition, unfortunately. But we'll see, you know. Will you be expanding into other states, do you think? Have you have you even thought about that? I do think about it. I think about it all the time. Um, you know, currently, like I mentioned, we're we're rooted in the Bay Area. We are working um, this year on expanding to other areas of the state. So that's kind of my initial focus is to make sure that we are rooted in uh, numerous areas in California. So that's that's, you know, working a lot on that this year and next year. But yes, we are thinking about coming to different states and what that would look like. You know, in some ways it is starting all over again because you're working within each state. Um, you know, some of my larger visions is to be able to be as actively in, involved in um, policy and lobbying efforts as possible because I love doing that type of work. That said, you know, this business kind of takes all of you and it's hard it's hard to do that i mean i think in many ways it feels like you need to be your own personal lobbyist and running your business and a bunch of other hats and that um you know at the end of the day then you need to really focus on your business um sometimes you can't wear all the hats in a day um but i think you know there are great um organizations working towards these change. And I think we will get there as well. I, I feel the momentum is there. The movement is there. And there are people that are legitimate converts. And I think that's why it's so important to get people's personal stories out. You know, I hope recreational is everywhere. I hope soon this is federally legal. In the meantime, till we get there, I really want those medical laws in place so that people can be uh, benefiting that really are in need. Yeah, that's, it's been such a challenge. And, you know, and the fact that you're, you're interested in the lobbying side of it, too, is really important. And I think that everyone who has a cannabis business should be out there talking to their legislators, both on a, a national level and a, and a, a local level as well. So the zip codes that you service, are they primarily in the Bay Area? Or if I were in San Diego, could you deliver to me because I'm in California? That is an excellent question. So um, one, our zip codes right now are all in the Bay Area. We do kind of an hour northeast west all around San Francisco. Theoretically, I could deliver to San Diego because um, the regulations state that a licensed delivery operator can deliver to any physical address within the state of California. That said, the most that a car can carry at one time is $5,000 worth of retail product. So it becomes, it's, it's not a, a good business strategy to be then driving from San Francisco to San Diego for, um, if that's the maximum of product you could carry. But what about private pilots? Like, I mean, a vehicle is a vehicle, right? So you've got airplanes, you've got trains, and you've got cars. Sure. Um, but again, the max you can carry is $5,000. So you're not, and um, the people delivering the product are, we are required for them to be employees. So um, they have to be an employee of mine. So there's no third party, there's no contracting out. 
Um, so my delivery people work for me, they're employees of the company. Um, and so, yeah, going to these far distances is not, you know, for us, that's not the right business model. We want to get our hubs um, closer to these locations and then uh, deliver from there. Yeah, understandable. Understandable. Well, it was worth a thought anyway, because I thought, you know, there are probably, a, you know, pilots, uh, private pilots who like to fly for, you know, all sorts of reasons are a dime a dozen. And, you know, a small aircraft isn't going to take as much fuel as like hiring a jet to take something down to, you know, another city or what have you. But yeah, it was, I was just interested to know what is possible there. And even yeah. if that was covered, you, that pilot would then need to, be, you can't transfer the packages either. So that pilot would then need to be the person that is bringing them door to door. So you can't, you couldn't have the pilot drive or fly down there, not drive. You couldn't have the, pl- the pilot fly and then have someone pick up the packages. You can't do that. What about Uber? No, you can't do, they're not, unless they're an employee of yours. Right. You'd have but, to employ that person and they can't deliver other products at the same time. I see. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? Welcome to my life. <laughs> Welcome to all the random facts I know now. Yeah. I mean, well, you're educating me about this and <laughs> I love I love to learn these things because, you know, it just seems so simple on the outside uh, looking in and then you, you realize, oh, there's just so much more to it than people really understand. But you know what? It's good to hear you talking about it because anybody in California, in Northern California, anyway, who goes onto your site can, if they're, they're hearing this, they can have a, a whole new appreciation for everything that you've had to go through to be able to provide this service. And, you know, quite frankly, it, it is an amazing service. And there aren't very many people with the wherewithal to actually get something like this up and running and be successful at it. So kudos to you. Oh, thank you. I, all, I, I have an amazing team around me. So I feel quite lucky that I have, I have an amazing co-founder, Amanda Denz, um, one of our early co-founders, Megan Zori. So we, there's a really great team of uh, women that has helped get this off the ground together. Would you say that you're a primarily uh, female-oriented organization? We're definitely women-owned and led. Yes, women-founded. Women are the um, leadership at the top currently. Um, And, you know, I think that's been a key to reaching the demographic that we're going out to. Um, That's been a really exciting part of the journey. Girl power, nothing like it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, this is great, you know, and and also, I mean, certainly your demographic must be those busy mothers who have autistic kids, for example, or children who who need medicine as well. I mean, what percentage do you think you have of of that type of person who has that kind of need? It's a little hard to say. Pulling that kind of specific data is a little different now because we don't need medical cards. Um, so when people purchase, you, you're not necessarily, um, it's not easy to necessarily section them out and identify like what percentage of the demographic is medical versus recreational, because that's not necessary to identify in that way. Um, that said, I would, a little hard for me to guess that number. Um, we also have, you know, a really big traction with older adults and seniors. Again, it's, you know, our type of accessibility and that we have 
really great customer service that takes time and make sure to talk people through things. We have, you know, consultations that we do for 20 minutes as well. So, you know, and within that demographic, there's a lot of, uh, quite a range of health conditions. Um, but it's a little hard with the way that the laws move now to kind of section out, which is, you know, a true medical purchaser versus someone who, you know, is using a product for everyday wellness, but has, you know, maybe a migraine. And so they still want this certain type of tincture. I mean, you could kind of pull data and reports based on certain types of products. Um, but it's, it's hard just from a demographic way that things are set up now to kind of section out who are the medical users. And that's a concern for some people is that, you know, the medical side is going to kind of get lost or swept aside. Um, but that's an ongoing, you know, debate from within the industry. It would make for an interesting white paper <laughs> to, to really know and understand. <laughs> yeah, just to know and understand what the audience is, because I think that will also help to push uh, laws on the federal level. And, you know, something else that you solve, too, especially for the elderly, is that stigma of you know, going into what could be daunting for some people into a dispensary, you know, and, and I mean, I'll never forget my first foray into a dispensary. It was intimidating. I felt very ignorant and I felt very, it was just intimidating. You walk in and, and in Arizona, I mean, you have to show your medical card and, you know, you feel like you're walking into Fort Knox. <laughs> but for, for people who grew up in that generation of, you know, either just say no or, or the reefer madness, devil's weed generation, I think that it, it is one of those daunting situations if they're not accustomed to it. So, yeah, it's interesting. So as we get closer to wrapping up here, do you have any other pressing thoughts, things that you feel that people in not just California, but in other states need to know? Oh, man, where do I begin? But, you know, I mean, I, I think a lot about education um, and how me as a business owner, what, what is, you know, responsible for me, um, which means a commitment to education. So I'm really interested in seeing that momentum continued so that people can actually understand what this plant is. So I just, I think a lot about, you know, the next stages and that there has to be a lot more education to help get us there. And also education around some of these social justice issues that there are people incarcerated while some of us are legally able to operate businesses. Um, it is something I think about uh, quite frequently, it keeps me up at night. And I think there's a responsibility for retailers to also, or anyone in the industry at any stage to be active in that, you know, we're in San Francisco here, we've had um, individuals have their records expunged for, you know, um, cannabis offenses. And so these are things that I want to see unfold in other areas of the country. And this is kind of, I think, you know, why people have such commitment and passion and activism around this is, you know, one, this is something that can be helpful and two, it's been criminalized. And so you need to kind of, um, it's a multi-pronged attack. Um, and I am excited though, where the industry is going to go. I'm happy to be here. It has, it has been an experience and it's been an experience that I'm interested in, you know, continuing to stay on board for. Well, 
it's amazing what you've done and amazing what you continue to do and you know I just have to congratulate you it's a beautiful site and even if you're in Ohio you should just go check it out and see <laughs> see what it is that has been done here because I think it is definitely a harbinger of the future because I think as we do get into federal legalization this is going to be a service that is necessary for a lot of people I mean and you think about it this is medicine people need it and if they need it chances are it's inconvenient to you know get up and go to a dispensary or to wherever it is that you can purchase cannabis so yeah so I see this as a definite future endeavor for all states I'd love to see it everywhere so but Andrea thank you so much for you know what you do and thank you for joining me today and I'm sure that this has been very instructive for people but I thank you thank you I had such a great time talking with you was incredibly easy I want to do this again with you <laughs> great Andrea thank you so much I'd love to have you back so let's do keep in touch so once again it is time to bring yet another show to a close I'd like to personally thank my guest Andrea Brooks for sharing her insights and knowledge with us today. If you'd like to learn more about the work that she's doing at Sava, please give us a visit online at thecannabisreporter.com. Click podcast to find today's episode, and there you will find her bio and a link to her website. We have so many people to thank. First, I'd like to express our gratitude for our radio sponsors, Sun State Technology and Healthterra. We certainly couldn't be doing this without you. I'd also like to thank Eric Goodall, composer of our theme song, Evergreen, the team here at The Cannabis Reporter for always making us shine, our programming directors at XRQK Radio Network and Society Bites Radio for broadcasting our show, and our media distribution partners, Newsbank, Compassionate Certification Centers, and Cannabis Radio for helping us to spread the word. And last but not least, Thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Snowden Bishop inviting you to join us again next week, same time, same place, for another episode of the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. Until we meet again, be safe, stay informed, share what you've learned, and make it a great day. When you think of chips relative to cannabis, microchips may not come to mind. Hi, I'm Terry from Sunstate Technology Group here to tell you that our chips help cannabis companies compete and succeed. From planning and expansion to hardware and daily IT support, Sunstate proudly serves the technology needs of the cannabis industry. You know that having the right technology is critical to security and smooth business operations. Partner with a technology team that understands the unique needs of this industry. For details, visit sunstatetech.com cannabis. You're busy. Running around from work to kids to evening events, healthcare shouldn't be adding to your daily running around. Simplify your healthcare with Helterra. For only $15 per month per individual or $18 per month per family with up to nine kids, by the way, you can eliminate doctor office visits with 24-7 access to doctors via phone, video, or the mobile app. Not only do you get prescriptions filled over the phone, but save up to 85% on those prescriptions. This is a supplemental plan and not insurance. Healthcare made easy. Helterra.com. 
Good sound.